Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. I'm here with Jason Buck, CIO of the Mutiny Funds, with the first in-person interview of the Business Brew experience. As a reminder, nothing in this podcast is investment advice. It's for educational purposes only. Any security that we mention is not a buy or sell recommendation, and do your own due diligence as always. So, uh, Jason, how you doing? Great. I'm excited to be the first time in person. Always nervous because as I listen to your podcast, you get people to be vulnerable, and I feel like you're going to do an extreme job of vulnerability as we're sitting here, you know, three feet apart from each other. It's a little awkward. It is a little awkward. I think that we're both going to cry by the end of this, if you're okay with that. Always. It's it's your typical finance podcast. <laughs> so for those that don't know, we got to know each other because you reached out to me as you realized that I was a mental wreck and tried to help me through some things. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't I think it was like or was it game recognizes game? It was like like recognizes like. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you have a bit of the manic energy and I know exactly what that's like. But no, I reached out to you because I thought what you were doing was fantastic on your podcast and it was so unique. And then, you know, mutual friends with Toby and other people, I just thought we'd make the connection. Yeah. And then we found out today that we both eat cold chicken. <laughs> yeah. Over the sink like sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be fantastic. So really taking a step back here, you reached out to me when I was going through some of the stuff that I was internalizing with the idea that I had to monetize the podcast and you kind of had some ideas. So do you want to give people your background if they don't know who you are and just sort of how you got into the financial world? Sure. So I think just preternaturally, I'm an entrepreneur since I was a little kid. I mean, from, you know, braiding and selling bracelets in school and like at nine or 10 to, to selling mixtapes as like a 12 or 13 year old where I'd like do uh, my own mashups of like Yo! MTV raps and sell them in school. So yeah, I know man. that's after your own heart doing a little, little hip hop and liberal rap back in the day. Well, the mixtapes were hot back then. Yeah, I, I was probably the only person in my school, but it was this was probably even pre that. I mean, I was 12, 13, we're talking like probably early 90s, so yeah. mixtapes in school. But you, I basically, I plugged my cassette recorder into my TV and Yo! Oh, MTV wow. raps would come on at like two in the morning in Michigan. And so I would set my alarm to get up in the middle of the night and then I would tape the Yo! MTV raps onto a tape and then I'd dual cassette players and then I'd make, I'd burn the mixtapes off of that and then I'd sell them in school for like five bucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like that. So hip hop head from the back in the day, but you're definitely up on me on on modern hip hop. So yeah, well, I only know Cal Scrubby. I don't know, and he <laughs> might even pronounce it Scrooby. I'm sorry, Cal. I know you listen. <laughs> he needs to come on, man. I want to talk to him. But anyway, so always been an entrepreneur, but also an investor. I think it's that stereotypical story. When I was like 13 years old, I got my dad to help me buy like my first stock. I think it was American Standard, like the toilet company. Oh, I think yeah? I read an article that they were putting toilets in China, and I was like, this is a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> Mid checks out. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of deep, in-depth, deep value research. So yeah, I started, you know, obviously buying stocks at 13, you know, later in life at what, 18, 19 was the, my favorite boom bust cycle of all time. Just like Meb, I, I love the internet boom and was doing like, you know, E-Trade and all those things and turned a little bit of money into a, a small fortune at 19 and then lost it subsequently in the next few months. You know, when it's always amazing how you can think you're a genius when you hit that rising tide. Yeah. And, and so, you know, went through that as well. And then um, later on, started trading. I've been trading options for the better part of two decades, trading instruments like the VIX for about a decade. But more importantly, like I said, I was an entrepreneur. And so, how do you trade VIX? Are you looking at like support and resistance levels? 
No, you don't have that because inherently it's mean reverting. And so what you're really doing, you're trading like a relative value, like arbitrage trade. So you're pairing it against the S&P for the most part, right? Okay. And so what you're doing there is you have that inverse correlation. Yeah. But what you're trying to do a lot of times is you're trying to get the ratios right between VIX and S&P. So that way you're capturing the roll yield because you have the term structure of the VIX futures contracts, which means most of the time you're in contango, which means you're rolling down the curve. So if you can isolate that roll yield premium with trying to reduce the risk of VIX spiking and ripping your face off, you can capture a lot of roll yield premium during a risk on cycle. All right, let's uh, let's take a step back and <laughs> yeah. try to tell, explain this like we're talking to a five-year-old. So VIX is a instrument that captures the volatility in the S&P on, right on average, or doesn't capture, but tries to express. Yeah, VIX is technically a, it's a representation of the options on the S&P 500. The implied volatility in the options. Correct. Right? Yeah. And so you're using a strip of options, both puts and calls, and that, that helps you derive the VIX index and it's 30 day forward. So it's looking out th the next 30 days forward. And that gives you an idea that's what creates the VIX index. Now, the problem with the VIX index, when people are looking at it, it's colloquially called the fear index. The problem is the VIX index is untradeable. So to make it tradable, the, the futures industry created a, a futures curve for it. So you have all of your calendar months. And as you move out your calendar months, most of the time VIX is in contango, meaning the curve is kind of up and to the right. And so as you come forward through time, that curve- Just real quick, why would that, it, I guess that makes sense because the further out, the more uncertain you are. Correct. So the more fear there should in theory be, or more implied volatility there right. should be in that contract. You're pricing in uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. That so makes sense. It's volatile. Well, as Benoit Mandelbrot called it, it's like volatility in the arrow of time is the, the longer you have on time span, the more volatility you're going to see. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause your dispersion of outcomes is wider. Exactly. And so because of that term structure and that contango curve, as you're moving through time, that curve is going to roll down to spot and sometimes right because the time is compressing and some of the implied volatility or rent that you pay in options compresses out correct and so if spot is at 15 let's say and then your first month at 17 and then your next month at 19 those are going to roll down to meet spot in in basic terms now spot can rise to reach i mean yeah. you can have a lot of wonkiness there but in general you're going to roll down the curve towards spot and that can that can build in a, a roll yield premium does the yield, is it similar to like a, a just an individual option where there's a lot of implied vol volatility bleed in that last month? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily accelerate like you would with like the theta decay yeah. in an option as you're, as you're reaching expiration. Like you get that much more violent theta decay in those last few days for expiration. But no, it's, it's more of a steady decline than you yeah. would see in, in, in implied volatility in option space. Dude, I, I talked to some people that don't know that much about options and they'll do like weekly calls that expire at the end of the week. And it's like, you know, you got to pay a lot in rent. So if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about, the, the theta decay, which is basically the rent that you pay to own an option for a period of time in the last like 15 days of the option, is it, it just like burns off like crazy. I've heard it described as an ice cube that you're pushing closer and closer, closer to a fire. Right. And like, as you get from you know far away the ice cube's not melting quite as much but as you get close to the fire it just starts to turn into water quickly exactly and that's why like professionals will roll that like you know farther out from from that end terminus point because like if they buy a three-month option they're likely going to roll it after one month okay because so they want two on yeah, yeah yeah so they're only they're only eating that theta for one month 
And then they're allowing, then they roll it with two months left to expiration. Because as you said, as you get closer, it starts to really, you know, lessen the price. And if you're long, right? Correct. correct. Yeah. So a pro that's selling is trying to sell front month, right? Correct. But like, it's interesting, right? That you, you're talking about the weeklies is like, if you're buying those weeklies, a lot of the GameStop people were like YOLOing call options in like the last hour of trading on a Friday. Like it's, so it's, it's definitely a rolling, it's either worth zero or it's worth a ton. But I, I always think about the people selling that. You know, it's like, how do you even create a market? Like how yeah. much premium do you want to collect? You know, this is why. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause somebody's paying like two cents and it could end up 10 bucks or whatever. So you just hit like a massive win, right? Yeah. And that's why we saw, you know, implied balls getting into like the 400 level once GameStop mm. started really ripping. Hmm. That's interesting. I had a good follow-up, but I lost it. So we'll continue on your, on your path and yeah, then we'll so get back into it. I'll go back a little bit. So like I said, I was an entrepreneur and I started a commercial real estate development company in Charleston, South Carolina. And along with developing commercial real estate along that like King Street corridor, I had also owned restaurants and internet service provider, et cetera. And then the GFC happens, you know, 2007, 2008. And the macro liquidity environment dried up and it was extremely painful, right? I had no qualms about it. Like just like fetal position on the floor, losing money for myself, family, friends. It was like the most painful experience I've ever gone through. You know, just like blew up. It was just, you know, nightmare. I was over leveraged into commercial real estate as most commercial real estate developers are. And I just never want to feel that pain again. What does that mean? Over leveraged, like roughly on a, well, it's, it's like, like 80% levered or it's it's all dependent on your cash flow, Right. And the problem, here's the problem that I find. And this is what we were trying to solve as well is like, if you're a commercial real estate developer, you're so a lot of times working on projects two to five years out. And so it's not, not necessarily your yeah. leverage level. It's like where your cash flow is, your debt service payments, and where the cycle of each property is. Yeah. And can you imagine like juggling dozens of properties? And so sometimes your cash flow is thin, sometimes it's not, sometimes you're rolling it over, sometimes you have 1031 exchanges. So it's not necessarily the leverage level you get from the bank. It's how do you service all of these disparate elements that have different time cycles to them? And that's the problem. If you're doing two to five years out, you really need a low volatility environment, right? You need the future to look like today. So you're you're implicitly short volatility. So if volatility hits the markets and liquidity dries up globally. Then you're screwed. Then you're screwed. Yeah. And so that's- You also got to monitor who's building around you, right? Because Uh, I mean, the lead times, that's, that's a tough game. Yeah, it was a tough game. And I remember specifically, I started seeing, you know, in 2007, some cracks kind of in the mortgage market. And I remember I, I pulled together like five or six of the, a lot of the older commercial real estate developers. And I asked them, I was like, are you, like, are you guys concerned? Like I'm seeing a few cracks here on the mortgage market that could lead to cascades and what we're doing. And to a man, all of them were like, no, this time's different. Hmm. But I was young. I was in like my mid twenties. So now I've learned that commercial real estate developers are just optimistic perennially. Yeah. So that was part of the process. So they all thought nothing was going to happen, and obviously something happened. But I mean, I think that's part of commercial real estate developers is those these things do happen, and then they they recover from the ashes, and they're just optimistic, and they'll roll the dice again. Yeah. So that's, well, it's kind of like stock investors. Yeah. Or I think about it as like uh, it's a lot of the short volatility guys. Like, how many times can they blow up? Like LTCM or recently with Archegos, it's like, I think that was his third blow up. And I heard somebody said it perfectly. It was like, he needs to go for a fourth and then he'd be a legend. You know, many, many short vol guys have blown up, you know, three times. It's like, yeah. can you go for four? And everybody goes, okay, you sell volatility for 10 years. You make a ton of money. Then you blow up and everybody goes, oh, that was a black swan event. Let me give you money again. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of insane when you think about it. Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about that with the insurance market too, which is not like some unique thought. I mean, that's sort of short vol, right? Yeah, so, same thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're selling volatility. I mean, it's the same thing when you're selling options, right? You're collecting that premium and then you're hoping nothing bad happens to you. Yeah. And the same thing. Yeah. I don't know how you would price selling insurance. And I'm sure like you, you study this when you're looking at different you know, stocks to look at, whether it's insurance or reinsurance, it's like something could happen and that whole book goes away. Like, I mean, 20, 30 years of profits can go away like overnight. I mean, that's what we see when we have things like Hurricane Katrina or COVID or these unexpected events, especially if they can lead to a cascade, depending on how diverse their book is. You could lose decades of profits overnight. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I've begun to appreciate more as I followed the market longer is it really sucks when you have to go risk off in your investment book because of this sort of black swanny type event. And what I've noticed, I mean, I've only been on the earth for just under four decades, even though I look like two, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There, there always seems to be a black swan that comes across like once a decade. You know, now I don't know if that's historically accurate and that's clearly some recency bias, I guess what I'm saying, but. It actually comes along historically like almost less than a decade. And actually the anomaly was the last 12 years that we went 12 years without having a sell, a massive sell-off. Yeah. So that was more the anomaly, but yeah, they're usually like, like five to seven years. So we don't know if, you know, people want to blame central banks and liquidity and all those sorts of things. But yeah, the anomaly has actually been the last 12 years waiting from 2009 to, to 2020. That was really the, that was the anomalous period where you didn't have a big crash in between. Yeah, I like talking to Corey about how 2017 was an anomaly, yeah. but in the right tail, right? That's something that I haven't, I, I don't, whenever I think about financial markets, I'm always focused on left tail risk, Yeah, right? But like a year where it just continually grinds higher with almost no drawdown, that is a very nominal, is that a word? That's what I'm going to use, <laughs> yeah. whatever, year was an interesting concept. Not earth shattering to most, but earth shattering to me. Yeah, 2017 was like the lowest volatility on record. 2019 was almost right behind that. But that's where you had, yeah, this just suppressed volatility and the market's grinding higher. And so, yeah, you have, you know, right tail risk that you could buy, call options to try to monetize that. But also if you're just riding those linear long S&P instruments in those environments is a great, great place to be. But that's, you know, a lot of people would say part of that suppression is that people are are selling volatility now in mass quantity. It's part of the financialization. And as, as interest rates have gone down, you know, a lot of real money players are looking for, for ways to earn that yield. So they're, they say they're going out the risk curve. And one of the ways they're doing that is selling volatility, right? They're yeah. selling those options. And by selling those options in, in mass quantities, it almost like pins the market sometimes like 2017, 2019. And that really suppresses volatility, but you can only suppress it so long for when it breaks out, then it breaks out even more violently. If like, if you can break through that two standard deviation, you're going to move to five standard deviations really quickly. And that's what a lot of people fear now is like, that's what Corey's paper was about was the liquidity cascades. Like if this thing cascades, it can cascade out of control quickly because it breaks through that that mean reversion pinning that's been going on in the markets. This is going to sound really dumb, so I apologize. <laughs> but the selling vol, is that included when you see the leverage levels in markets? Is that included or is that not included when people are calculating leverage levels? Do you know? Like what specifically when they're looking at leverage levels? Maybe that would be I don't know. I just see like, I mean, it obviously wouldn't be in margin debt, right? But if, if people are selling right. puts... To, to get some sort of float to do something with it. That is leverage. It may be off balance sheet, but there's official, like there's an obligation potentially, right? So I just didn't know if that counts in people's, like when you see sort of some of these studies, I don't know if that counts as leverage in the system or not. It usually doesn't, and that's how they hide it, right? Yeah. And, but you can figure out the notional level of the derivatives market, but most people aren't, right? A lot of people are looking at margin debt, and are they 
levered long S&P beta or something like that. Yeah, They're not, this would not capture. Right. And it's just like selling insurance. It's like if you're selling insurance, you know what the premium collected is. Yeah. But you don't know what's going to happen if you have a downside event. Yeah. And so you can't really calculate that. And yeah. so yeah, that's why, yeah, it's a way to kind of hide that. And that's what we're saying, moving out the risk curve and selling ball. It's a way to get like kind of a, a leverage bet on earning more yield. And hopefully you never have to pay the piper. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a way to hide it. Or you own lower calls, which is sort of like, or puts rather. If you own lower strike puts, then in theory, that's like reinsurance. But then you have counterparty risk, which is just like reinsurance. So anyway, <laughs> I digress. Okay, so where were we? You're a commercial real estate developer. Yeah. And so 2007, 2008 happens. And like I said, the, the pain of that event really drove me to figure out there has to be a way to like hedge entrepreneurial risk. And for like these macro liquidity events that we experience, you know, once every 10 years. And a lot of people said that's impossible. And I was like, well, I like things that are really hard. So let me see if I can figure this out. And so, you know, part of that is if you can hedge your macro liquidity risk, you can be much more, you can take a lot more idiosyncratic risk as an entrepreneur. You can really believe in yourself and go 100% full force into what you're doing as an entrepreneur, whether that's, you know, building a business or commercial real estate or whatever it is. If you can hedge out those, those macro liquidity risks, then you, you have, a, to me, a, a superpower. You have a tremendous advantage. And so... What we tried to do, I tried to figure that out. So I, I knew how to, you know, like I said, been trading options, started trading the VIX in 2011, 2012. And so, you know, had, had kind of deeply immersed in those markets. And then around 2014, 2015, I started tracking all the other managers in the, in the volatility space. All right, wait, wait, wait. Let's start out how you trade the VIX. Yep. You're coming into this because you just, I'm going to use your term, blew up, not, yep. not mine. Yeah. How do you start to think of the VIX and how do you start to like teach yourself how to trade that instrument? That is like a very yeah. esoteric instrument, right? Yeah. A lot of I pros guess. don't even really understand how to trade the VIX. Well, especially back then, it was a very nascent market. And so what happened was I became fascinated by Claude Shannon's demon, which is about rebalancing premium. Is this if you had a, a very volatile instrument, let's say a coin flip, right? And if you got heads, you go up 100%. If you got tails, you go down 50%. So no matter how many times you flip, you end up at zero, right? Because that's the the volatility tax of, of that kind of return. But what Claude Shannon was uh, talked about in an MIT lecture, I think in the 1960s, early 70s, was that if you balance that with 50% cash and 50% that coin flip, you could harvest the rebalancing premium. You could harvest that volatility and actually have a, a positive return. And you, so you could go up and to the right. So every time you'd flip, you'd rebalance the cash. So you're capturing. So what you're doing is you're closing the delta between the arithmetic return and the geometric return. Even though you, you'd actually compound at about 12% if you were just rebalancing to cash. So that was like Shannon's demon. And he gave that in a lecture and somebody goes, well, could you do that in markets? And he's like, no, because the transaction cost would kill you. But okay, is, so just real quick in the yeah. coin flip, I flip tails, I lose 50%. Correct. Now I'm two thirds cash, one third long, whatever, my coin flip bet. So then I take, I just move it to half and half again. Move to half flip and half. Again. Okay. And then you make 100%. Yeah. So then you come back up and, you make okay. half, and the same thing. So if you can, there's plenty of ways you can play with this online to see like kind of what that looks like. But you're, you're then turning that volatility tax into a rebalancing premium. So it's, it's an interesting way to think about markets in general. And what happens is what he's doing is he's, he's pairing a really volatile instrument with an uncorrelated flat instrument of cash, right? What's even more interesting is if you pair a very volatile instrument with another volatile instrument, but they're negatively correlated, you can actually do even better. And so 
this kind of, this obsessed me, right? And so I was trying to figure out instruments like that. And then I really always like the futures market because you have portfolio margin and everything. So you can toggle whatever leverage or volatility you want. So I was really just looking for something inverse, two instruments that were inversely correlated. And that's how I stumbled onto uh, S&P and VIX. Ah. And so that's where that pairs trade came in. As I started figuring out how do I, okay, how do I pairs trade this? And then at the time- it's just I, like teaching yourself this shit? Teaching myself. I'd already traded a little bit of like futures. So I had a futures account. So I started teaching myself stuff and then I just started hiring. Traded um, a little bit of futures. What do we mean here? <laughs> like a contract or like you had known how futures work? Futures is easy to get yourself over levered in. Yeah. So you have to, you have to be very careful about notional value versus margin, which we call performance bond a lot of times in futures. So you have to be very careful in futures, but I was obsessed. I think I mentioned this before when we were hanging out another time is that to me, people either come up uh, reading Warren Buffett or they come up reading the market wizards. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, obviously it's not that life's not that simple. No, it's that simple. That's it. Yeah. That's all you're allowed to read. Yeah. And so people are either that value orientated stock buyer, right? Which, you know, you fall into, or it's like, the market wizards were really about CTAs, commodity trend advisors. I don't know if I do. I do fall into that, but yeah. I I find myself flirting with non-value concepts. I got it. You're you're uh so you're getting a little promiscuous, but yeah, I'm like I'm non-value curious, right? But the idea your your baseline philosophy is yes. very Buffett, yeah, 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 and all my big bets are pretty value yeah. oriented, and it's and it's understandable. But what I loved about market wizards was like it showed there's so many. Can ways. I just? I'm Go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. The reason that I'm intrigued by this other way of thinking yeah. is I've just seen it work for a really long time that I think that there's something to it, right? And whether that's like Soros, whether that's Druckenmiller, whether that's some of the market wizards, like there's just, whether it's David Gardner, like there's just another way that, I, I don't know, it's like getting to the same place through a different method. And it, it's it's intriguing to me. And I there's a part of me that thinks that that is right if that makes sense. I don't even know how to articulate the word that. And sometimes I speak very vaguely. Right. Hopefully we'll get there. So like, what do you think is so different about what they do? Maybe we could start there. I, th my sense is that there's a way of looking at the world where it's like, okay, well, this is the way the world is right. Not the way it should be in theory. And it tries to exploit the way the world is rather than the way the world should be. I would I would have loved to watch like a young Buffett today, right? Because if you're not buying really cheap businesses at two times earnings, I wonder what he would have been if he started it. I have no doubt that his track record would have been absurd because he's a genius, right? But the way he got there, I would have liked to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many of the games that he used to play are still just readily available. Yeah, markets change, but I do think like his superpower is really sticking with this philosophy over the decades, which yeah. very few people do, but maybe this will help. So I like what you said is, is pairing almost the way the world is versus the way the world should be. And that's right. The way the world should be is value. Yeah. And the way the world is, is sometimes trend following momentum, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Right. Yeah. And that, that's what I think was beautiful is when I would read in the market wizards, it was the way the world is. Right. And so you're buying at a high to sell even higher, or you're selling mm -hmm. at a low to sell even lower. And it's the antithesis of value investing, which is a mean reversion trade. And so those are converging trades. And these are divergent trades that the CTAs were doing. And so the same thing happened to me though when I was reading Market Wizards. I was like, okay, this makes money in divergent trades when we have trends and they're hitting all they're hit breaking out to all-time highs or they're breaking out to all-time lows, and they're just following that trend movement in price. So they're agnostic. And I that was more appealing to me intellectually, is like complete epistemic humility, like wherever it's going, I'm just following the price. But at the same time, I used to question, 
okay, if that works in trending markets and you get hurt in a mean reverting our, our value like environment, why wouldn't you pair both of them together? Yeah. But it's interesting. We, we form these religions, right? Like value is going to shit on momentum and growth or, or trend following. Yeah. And trend following is going to shit on value. Yeah. And to me, that never made any sense. And this is eventually where we get to building portfolios is like, no, these, both these things can work and they work at different times. So once again, almost can be negatively correlated. Yeah. So why wouldn't you pair those two strategies together? So when you said- I think I sort of have in a way, yeah. but you've done it in a much more robust way because the way that I've done it, at least my perception of what I've done is strictly in equities and you've done it in many different asset classes. And have you though, what I always wonder- I don't want to cut you off. I no, just, no, it's great because I wonder if- a lot of times value investors would then use a momentum overlay because they don't want to get caught in a value trap. And mm. I'm not sure if you end up in the worst of all worlds then because you almost want value stocks and momentum stocks and to pair those together, not yeah. overlay a momentum strategy onto a value strategy. Or how do you think about it? Well, I assure you that Twitter and Spotify are not currently momentum stocks <laughs> and I bought them after momentum broke. So let's say TBD on that. I do think that they're probably, uh, I haven't looked at like a trend line, but I'd be pretty shocked if they're below a longer term trend line. I bet they've I bet they've pulled back to a longer term trend line. I've always wondered I wanted to do an ETF called shit. Is already just <laughs> you just buy overpriced shit and underpriced shit. So you have you have the classic like Ben Graham cigar butts that are yeah. just underpriced shit like everybody hates. And then you have then you have stocks that are making all time highs that's just overpriced shit, but there's likely to continue that trend for the next month. So it's like hmm. and to pair those two together is like just shit ETF. I think that you could sell me the shit ETF if we were buying underpriced shit and then expensive and small. I would yeah. be I would be long that. Okay, so continue. I don't even know where where oh we were talking about futures and trading. So I, you know traded I dabbled in trading futures and that was part of you know trading options futures etc. I'm always interested in esoteric or harder to understand markets and just anything harder is always appealing to me because I think it's a blue ocean, right? If it's easy, everybody will do it. And yeah. so you, if you spend a lot more time on something that's much more difficult, then it's usually far less competition, but also sometimes stronger competition. So it's, it's difficult there. So I came to this idea of like pairing SAP and VIX that I came to on my own. I found out much later that this is a classic VIX relative value or VIX arbitrage trade, but I, I just found this all on my own research on my computer, just in isolation. And, and because I was fascinated by Shannon's demon and trying to find negatively correlated assets that I could rebalance frequently. Mm -hmm. And even if I didn't make any money on isolating the rule to yield the VIX, it's by rebalancing negatively correlated assets, you can achieve a rebalancing premium. And so it was, it was more about the mathematical side. I didn't really necessarily care about the instruments. It's like, how can I pair these different asset classes and rebalance them. It's more like the math of rebalancing that was fascinating to me. And so that's what I was doing for a while. And that's how I got into VIX and how I started learning more about the VIX space, the volatility space, long volatility, tail risk, all of these things. And what happened is I had started to have a lot of friends and family going, you know, I've read an Asim Taleb book or, or a Chris Cole white paper. And like, how do I hedge my portfolio? Like, do you have hundreds of millions of dollars? No, well, there's no options for you. You're screwed. And so it was like, as an entrepreneur that starts to eat at you, like that, that can't be a possibility. And so my eventual business partner, Taylor Pearson and I got together in like 2017, 2018, talking about these ideas of tail risk and hedging. Just So I, you'd worked on this for seven years. This, we're looking at a culmination of probably like a decade's worth of work yeah. that we're on now. But I got to know how you're making money. How are you putting food on the table? I wasn't, I was very lucky in that, like I had a family that, that cared about me. Okay. So so they're just like, we're going to take care of Jason while yeah. he trades VIX and S&P <laughs> yeah. in uncorrelated ways. And maybe one day he'll figure it out. Huh. 
So I got very lucky in that. So like I said, in 2008, 2009, like I blew up. And what does that mean to you? Do you have zero at that time? Yeah, zero. Holy Probably fuck. negative. You go from worth and, and this, for anybody listening, if you want to learn about net worth, net worth is just in a, a statement on paper. Yeah. You can't take a net worth statement to Starbucks and get a coffee. And so I went from, you know, millions and millions of dollars in net worth to zero or negative, like wow. within months. Dude, what that do to you? Like I told you, we were gonna cry. I this may be where. What that do to your self worth? Uh, yeah, destroyed it. Honestly. Yeah. No shit. And so, what's even worse too is I actually because I know knew a little bit about options trading, but wasn't as up on complex Greeks. I was actually shorting the banks and mortgage providers and losing money because of like trying to time it perfectly, paying too much, trying to time it perfectly. All of those things that every junior option trader learns is you really learn about what the Greeks mean. You yeah, know, and 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 it, it really matters what price you're paying, you know, yeah. of implied ball and your theta, et cetera. And so, to to not skirt your point, it is absolutely devastating. And because you also go through, you know, I was in my mid twenties and worth millions of dollars, and everybody starts treating you like you're very smart, and successful. Yeah, and so you start to believe, yeah, you're very yeah. smart and successful. Say, you start to believe your own shit. You, yeah, and, and and you're too young and you don't have an experience, so you start believing you're a genius, and then. Something like that happens and it's absolutely devastating and extremely destructive to your ego. And the worst part is like the money part absolutely sucks, right? You lose your, you know, lose all your income, lose money for your family and friends that believed in you. Yeah. And money's just one thing, but it's just like the absolute devastation to your ego. Like everything you thought you were like goes away. Yeah. And so it's like, so it's, it's also a rebuilding process from there. So that's also part of the the last 10 years is that rebuilding process. It's like, what am I good at? What can I do? And I never want to feel this pain again. Yeah. Because it's that acute. So. Did you wonder whether or not all your success was luck? Oh, yeah, definitely. And you realize it is. Huh. But you, you have skills when it comes to the restaurant game. Like we've talked about restaurants. You know how they're supposed to run. Yeah, you. but that's the thing. It doesn't matter how educated or how much level of skills you have is a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. So as long as you have skills and you marry that with a, a target-rich, long GDP environment where everybody's a wash in capital, then, then you can think you're a genius. Yeah, this is my fucking problem with my results, man. This, this is, is, what, this this is, is what why keeps I don't you trust myself. This yeah. is what keeps you up at night. 100%. Because you could throw darts in this market and make money. Right, but you survived Q1 of 2020. And that's- Because I had cash. Right. Yeah. So maybe I should get cash again, some as a fucking life preserver rather than running balls out. Right. Anyway. And I just treat it differently in cash. I look at it as like put options, which is like a convex cash position. This is the yeah. Way I, I, as you know, we've talked about is that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Why don't you mind expanding on that a little bit? Yeah. So part of the idea is I never want to feel that pain again. So how do you make up for that? And I've always been fascinated on how do you manage multi-generational wealth? You and I have actually had a lot of private discussions about this, but I'm a fourth generation wealth, which means the third generation went through the wealth. So first, that has to be part of the reason I've always been obsessed with managing multi-generational wealth. So that was also what I was working on for the last decade. Holy shit. Hang on. I'm just like putting this all in context. So yeah. you're fourth generation. You watched the third generation blow it. Sorry to the third generation, but that's what you did. So spade a spade, right? Yeah. And then you make the money back for yourself and then you blow it. Yeah. Fuck, that's got to be tough. It's tough, but also at least now in context and hindsight and, and a little bit removed from the pain, you also realize that first generation has to take so much fucking risk to make, to amass that wealth. 
And so like now we, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs and that's part of a being an entrepreneur. You have to take an incredibly concentrated bet. You have to get lucky on your timing. That's how you amass wealth. But then to keep the wealth for multi-generations, mm. you have to diversify. And that's a 180 degree turn from that first generation entrepreneur. But you're trying to, in a way, solve, you're almost trying to allow that person that needs to take a ton of risk to diversify some of the macro risk that they're taking and just allow them to truly bet on what they're saying. I'm just repeating to you yeah, what you said that, to me earlier, by yeah. the way. Huh. Did you think when you lost the money in 09, did you feel like, you know, my family is destined to lose something? Like, like, cause you watched the generation above you that ever cross your mind? Like there's something genetic in me that like, cause I worry about this yeah, shit with no, me. I know what you're talking about. And so I don't know if it's that specific and it, it's hard. Honestly, I think it was Adam Smith talked about the vivacity of impressions. And it's like, as soon as something happens, it's very real and, and, you know, tangible to you. And then as time goes on, it like almost wears off. And like, yeah. so now you think back and it's almost like somebody else, but also you have to think about to really put myself in those shoes is like that fear that you referenced. There were so many fears, like, not like that. It's like, I'm an idiot. I just got lucky. Yeah. My, my family's doomed. I'm doomed because of like a decision I made when I was like 13 to, I don't know, like to, to run a red light, you know, like you, yeah. you literally go through like the deepest, darkest times for like years. And it also, it's impossible to know that like you're in a deep depression. You yeah. Know, like, cause you, you just think you're normal, but you're ruminating on your thoughts so much that, you know, outsiders are, are worried that you're in depression. Even my, both my parents, they would have discussions of like, do they need to like put me in some sort of facility? Huh. Because I was like, like I said, blew up trying to figure it all out, you know, going through all of these different, you know, fears and dealing with my demons and everything like that. And also being like, I don't know what to do, you know, and then it's, it's, that's what I'm saying. I got really lucky. So, and you're an introvert too, yeah, extreme which introvert. people may not understand yeah, given yeah. the fact that you do YouTube videos and podcasts <laughs> all the time. But I suspect that you were dealing with all of this more or less, not alone, yeah. but by choice, you default to inward. So that doesn't help your brain yeah. sort of get out of the negative cycle, I wouldn't think. Well, what I, the, only did that, the only thing I did that could help me, you're right, I didn't talk to anybody for years, honestly, like years. And my, my poor mother was so so kind to me in that way. And like, so, you know, I had like food on the table and everything, but I wouldn't even talk to her. Yeah. And it was just like trying to deal with all that stuff. And, and but part of it, the way I, what I would, how I would handle it is I just wrote thousands and thousands of pages. So if I thought huh. if I could get it out of my mind and onto paper, I could attack myself. Huh. And so I would have conversations with myself. Did you shred this shit or did yes. you keep it? Yeah, you got to shred it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As soon as I told those, like, don't read it later. <laughs> as soon as a notebook filled up, it got thrown away. Huh. Do you ever regret sh shredding it? I do think that was, I, I don't want to say like right or wrong, but yeah. I, I would shred it too. No, I'm with you now. Now you look back and go, wow, I would love to read that, but I'm, I'm not sure if it like would look like the scribblings of the insane. Like, and that's yeah. part of like a lot of the other demons that I was dealing with. And, and you and I haven't talked about this specifically is like, almost like kind of felt like John Nash sometimes like, and one, I'm never as smart as John from Nash. From a beautiful mind. From a beautiful mind. Yeah, it's man. Like, not that smart, but like you start to wonder like the thing, the connections I'm seeing when I'm in a heightened state of awareness, Yeah. as we talked about the hypomaniac's edge is like, are these things real? Or is this a delusion? Yeah. And that's part of being slightly manic is you need that energy to create something beautiful and to do really interesting things and come up with new breakthroughs or epiphanies. But at the same time, it can be your Achilles heel because how do you know what you're seeing is, is reality-based? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's been one of the hardest things 
I, I get it particularly when I'm like deep researching an idea and I think things are like really clicking and then I get more amped up and then I research more and then like sometimes sleep falls by the wayside. And thus far, it has not bit me in the ass, right? But I also am like worried that it's a series of luck, right? I'm just like flipping heads. So I don't know. That's a very, very, and I don't know that then somebody would say, well, you need to have a process, right? And you need to have guardrails around you. But the other side of that is, well, you know, sometimes process will ruin the creativity that is generating the returns. So it's like a very, very, I, I find it to be a tightrope that's like very hard to know whether or not I'm walking the correct way or whether or not I'm just getting lucky. I, I really think I'm closer to reasonably talented, but I don't actually know the answer to that. And I'm not sure we ever could, but like, it's also amazing. It's like the best part is like when you start seeing those connections and you start putting these like pieces of the puzzle together and you're seeing it and you feel different ways than anybody else has seen it. Yeah. The high of that, like you said, and then it's, sick. Like, it's, it's the best high in the world. And then I think thankfully we both have very grounded, significant others. Yeah. And that brings us back down. But also, I don't know how you feel. It's like, if my girlfriend says you're in a, like a manic state or whatever, you, you don't hear it though when you're in a manic state. Yeah. But then hopefully in hindsight, a few days later, you can come back to it. And then you can you can parse through what you came with in that slightly manic state to find out, okay, there's some good pieces here. And I actually was onto something here yeah. when you're in a much more you know, equilibrium state. Yeah. Happens to me when I smoke sometimes too. <laughs> the weed. You know what's what's helpful for me is having my wife that I can look at her. And, and I agree with you, like when you're in the manic state – but sometimes she can give me a look and it's like, okay, regardless of, of whether or not I'm bordering sort of on like this creative mind frame, like she has the ability to sort of snap me back to earth, which is helpful. Yeah. I don't know what it would be like if I had, if I didn't have her, Lord knows. Well, that's those, those years of me living alone. That's what it, that's what it boils down to. But I also just realized we were on a podcast. So I'll have to put this out there though. It's like, I expressed this to you before. I remember over a decade ago, I read a book called The Hypomaniac's Edge. And the idea was it's a, is that we, if we all have a slight form of mania or a slight form of bipolar, that was like every explorer that ever lived, everybody that moved their family to the new world, every entrepreneur, every like anybody that's achieved anything has a little bit of hypomania in that you need at least a little bit of a manic state to try to do anything new. Otherwise, you yeah. just stay in stasis. And so I, I want to bring that up because it's, it's both helpful in that like a lot of us go through this. And yet, especially in finance, we're unwilling to talk about it, right? Because we have to sound so buttoned up and professional and that sound like we're extremely rational. And that's that's the hard part too, is like both of us are hyper-rational people, but then we can go through manic states. Am I? <laughs> I don't know. I am. No, I, I think I, I, I don't know. I, I think I've trained myself to be more rational than I used to be, for sure. But that's that creativity of a solid base of creativity is going to have some mania to it. Yeah. Otherwise, how come, how can you come up with anything new? The other thing that I think that must be hard to live with like myself and I suspect you as well is in order, I, I think to be good at a pursuit that is this hard requires obsession. I don't think that you can just be like a halfway crook and <laughs> yeah. get through this. Nice reference. Yeah. So, you know, it just, I, I can't imagine what it's like to live. Uh, same with law. I mean, any, any of these professions, that's just like really, really competitive and intelligent. Like you're competing with a bunch of intelligent people. I think obsession is probably one of the key differentiators between those that win and those that don't. Yeah, and not, then a fair amount of luck. Yeah, not to solipsistically like, hype up ourselves in our own industry, but like, let's just be honest. 
it's the highest remunerated industry in the world. So you're going to get the highest level of talent and competition in, in finance and investing and trading. And so that's also what appeals to us too, is right. Is that obsession and like, I can compete at the highest levels Yeah. and to compete at the highest levels, you need to be just crazily obsessed with what you're doing. Yeah. That's why I have chosen financial entertainment as my <laughs> pursuit of choice, sir. <laughs> but I, I don't disagree with you. All right. Where the heck were we? I don't know. This is how this podcast goes, though. Yeah, I know. I'm, 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 I'm glad that you forgot that you were on a podcast. I that did, means yeah. I'm doing a decent job. Always, yeah. You still haven't cried. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you are 2017. You have yeah. this concept and you meet Tyler. Taylor. 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 So Taylor. No, it's all right. It happens to him all the time. So Taylor Pearson and I met online through a mutual friend. It's, it was interesting. Um, you know, Taylor's younger than me. He was talking about like at, at their wedding, like 50% of the people he'd met online at their huh. wedding. That's just you know the world we live in now. And so we, we came together talking about, originally it was about stable coins, crypto stable coins in like 2017, 2018. Um, they were always interesting to me. And then we ended up talking more about volatility, long volatility, tail risk sorts of things. And just kind of realized we had we had very similar ideas about it or similar lines, and we both wanted to protect ourselves and our families like moving forward. It's like how do you, one, protect against entrepreneurial risk, like we we're saying that entrepreneurial put option, but or how do you, you know, protect multi-generational wealth? How do you build real lasting wealth? And so then we decided to get together as, as two entrepreneurs, like we could solve this problem. And, and Taylor was looking at investing in just like one long volatility manager, but I tried to show him there's so many path dependencies to a sell-off that you really need an ensemble approach. And, but to build an ensemble approach would require you to be like a QEP or a QEP or a QP investor, which is higher than accredited and would probably cost you 20 to 50 million to put it together. And so what I'd figured out during that isolation period and everything was that there's different investing vehicles like commodity pool operations, et cetera, where you could pool investors together and that commodity pool would qualify for like QEP, which a lot of those manager minimums were. And so if you could aggregate What's QEP? What does it stand for? Qualified eligible participant and then yeah. qualified participants QP. And so it's like you go from like accredited, which is 200,000 income, a million assets to QEPs, like 2 million assets outside your home. But also you have to have like two years invested in futures. Oh, and huh. then QP is like 25, like it just keeps ratcheting yeah. up. And what happened, the reason those are there is this is ridiculous, but any manager that only accepts that higher level of accreditation means the less regulatory burden they have. Huh. But they can't they can't advertise, they can't put themselves out as an investment manager. But if they only take like QP or QEP, yeah, that makes sense. They don't have to I mean, do all the I don't know that it makes sense, yeah. but it makes sense. So those are the kind of the, these are a lot of like the logistical issues that I think took years for me to figure out that that's, this is where the vehicle came in. It's like, okay, if we can aggregate five million dollars, we can then put this money into an ensemble of volatility managers, long volatility and tail risk managers. This will protect people's portfolios. And we could start just assessing accredited investors with like a hundred thousand dollar minimum. And so it was like, as this business works, it's like you have to have epiphanies about the investing process and you have to have something novel and unique and you have to be hyper rational about that. But then you have to spend years being th thinking through all of the different logistical and legal ramifications of the structure you want to build. And that's almost just as hard. And then the third piece is you have to manage the investment business which is almost harder than managing an investment portfolio. Yeah. And that's the the beautiful marriage of, of Taylor and I is, you know, we are, I've never actually found like a partner that like, I felt like I was like on equal footing with necessarily in the past. And then to have somebody that is so complimentary, but we're so different. And so the things that we do really work together where it's like a, a one plus one equals five scenario. 
And it's just, I just serendipitously like lucked into that. And it's almost like we we're talking about with our significant others, the way they balance us out is like Taylor and I like balance each other out perfectly. Well, it wasn't serendipity, right? It was putting yourself out there, meeting online, finding somebody. I mean, I, I think that it's a lot of hard work, right? Is, is how you serendipitously find something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Shit doesn't just fall out of the sky, man. It's not like that's not what it is. Everything that has ever happened to me that's good that I'm like, oh boy, that was a coincidence. It was all because of hours and hours and hours and hours and hours leading up to that serendipitous, you know, event, right? Yeah, you put in the work and you're looking for it. The way I look at it is like whenever you're focused on something, you create like a monocle, right? That you view the world through. So whenever anything comes inside there, you notice it's like when you buy a new car, right? You yeah. see that car everywhere all of a sudden because you have a level of focus. So yeah. that level of focus brings, you know, because otherwise you're getting millions of bits of data coming into your conscious every day. And so how do you parse that through? It's like through hyper-focus, you parse out what's important. Yeah. So that's maybe how. I think that's right. Um, my serendipitous event was going to Streamsong. I, th I guess it was 2017. I just have a podcast that came out that we talked about it. But it was Connor Leonard and Chris Sasley. I hope I didn't butcher your last name, Chris. If I did, my apologies. And they put together an event, right? And it's like, I, it took years of doing what, I mean, I was, tr I was trying to find a solution for myself. So I was probably two years professional at this time. Right. But it took a lot of years of like, when I was at the bank, I remember when I think, uh, Tyson bought this meat company. I forget what it was called, but it was packaged meat. And like the multiple was crazy, right? And I, I was like, oh, this is stupid, right? I was dumb. I didn't understand like distribution advantages. I always heard like, oh, synergies are overstated. So there's no such thing as re revenue. Like, no, turns out there are revenue <laughs> synergies, you fucking idiot. You just don't know what you're talking about, right? And like when Buffett says, beware of synergies, that doesn't mean they don't exist. That means like beware of them, right? Like don't just accept them on their face. I think it might've been Crave was what they bought, but maybe not. If post-market you're listening, shout out uh, the answer. Anyway, so it was just realizing that I was an idiot. And then when they did that event, I said like, boy, you know, these are guys that I think are really smart. I'd like to put myself, you know, in that kind of a room. And I think I tried to add some value. I probably took more value than I gave. Hopefully I'm reciprocating some now, but I don't know. It was one of those things and it changed my life. And now like my boy, Francisco and Alex, we talk all the time. We met there. Connor reached out with some like really important advice that I needed to hear at the right time recently. And it's just like one of those things like, oh, well, how do you, how do you know these guys? It's like, it takes having the balls to say, I'll go. It takes the time to build the network to figure out who's doing stuff like that. It, it doesn't just happen. So when you say that you just met him, like, I don't, I don't believe that. Yeah. I, I just think maybe it just feels that way. Yeah. And I just, I wonder too, like you're saying, like you just said it takes like the balls to go or show up. And I, I think people that aren't extreme introverts don't realize how much that takes sometimes to have the energy to come, like come to show up to things. But also part of it too, is like, I think a lot about, it was Seth Godin, I think they said like, be so good. They can't ignore you. Yeah. And that's what I think about too, is like by that hyper-focus, by that obsession, you get so knowledgeable about something that people can't ignore you. And I think that's also what Taylor and I look for is like, we come from outside the industry, right? We didn't go to Ivy League schools. We didn't work at Goldman Sachs. You know, we aren't, we didn't work at a bank, you know, our bank and we weren't these traditional traders. But if we got so obsessed and so good that people couldn't ignore us and we built products that people really needed, it's like, you will find that audience.
Yeah. And so it's that that's part of the obsessive process too. And then, like you said, that I'm with you. It's like hard work opens up serendipity, but it's like, how could you ever know? Yeah. So how did you think through, I mean, you're an entrepreneur starting a financial services business or a fund is not exactly the easiest path for an entrepreneur. How'd you think through that? So part of that was in 2014, 2015, when I was really tracking other volatility managers is one of the things I stumbled across was a futures platform with RCM alternatives out of Chicago. And RCM alternatives is guys that go all the way back to trading on the pit floors and everything. And so they have like maybe six pillars to their business. But one of those pillars was they had a platform for sourcing futures and alternatives managers. And so I would, you know, go on their platform, track all these managers, but then I'd, I'd call those guys up asking questions because they, huh. they made the mistake of like old school, like if you call, we'll like answer on the first ring. Yeah. And so I would call all the huh. time and just start picking these guys' brains. So I, I got to know some of the guys over the years. And so when it was time to, to set up our fund, I realized we need an institutional backbone, right? We're not, you know, we're not from the industry. So that was the, the smart pairing that we did is almost we joint ventured our back office with RCM Alternatives. So now we have this structural backbone of a multi-billion dollar firm that's been in the futures and, and option space for decades. Mm -hmm. And they have like 30, 40 people on their team. So that was the real, also one of those breakthroughs. Like I said, to build the business requires just as many breakthroughs as building an investment portfolio. So that was, that was how we built this structural backbone where we could have an institutional quality product with two guys coming from outside the industry. And you're, I mean, at this stage, you're, I mean, to be perfectly clear, you're a fund of funds, correct? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And you have how many managers? In the long volatility piece, we have 13 managers. And so what we did initially is I was always obsessed with Harry Brown's permanent portfolio when we're talking about managing multi-generational wealth. Harry Brown came up with this in the 1970s is four quadrant model. And the idea is everything is in four quadrants and on the axes of growth and inflation. So you either have growth or recession, or you have inflation or deflation. And those are the four quadrants. And Harry Brown, when he originally built it in the 70s, he said, for growth, I use stocks. For recession, I use cash. For inflation, I use gold. And for deflation, I use bonds. And that, those were his four quadrant model. He held them in equal weight and then just rebalanced with rebalancing bands. And that's how he looked to manage multi-generational wealth. And he called it the permanent portfolio. Now, ironically, when Ray Dalio came up with his all-weather portfolio, it was basically a copy of the permanent portfolio, but he leveraged up the bond side. Uh -huh. That was the risk parity was equal weighting the volatility of the different assets. But he didn't you know, give a lot of homage to, to Harry Brown, but that's the kind of the framework I've always looked in, when you hear the four quadrant model, a lot of it comes from Harry Brown. When people talk about it today, whether it's on Hedgeye or other places, that four quadrant model comes from Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. So that's the way we thought about the markets a lot. But the one piece that, to me that was missing is as we become really financialized and we were talking about derivatives, the rise of derivatives in the last two decades and people moving out that risk curve is cash to me no, no longer provide enough ballast to the portfolio in a massive liquidity cascade. And so to me, you need derivatives on the other side to provide, like I said, that convex cash position. And so this is where we thought we, a modern interpretation of Harry Brown would be global stocks, global bonds, long volatility and tail risk instead of cash to help balance the portfolio. And then in inflationary times using commodity trend advisors or commodity trend, those are instead of just gold. Like th these are ways that I view if Harry Brown were alive today and he had modern tools, he might build it better that way. So to build that, the first piece we built was the long volatility and tail risk, because that's by far the one that retail clients couldn't have access to. So our families, our in-laws didn't have access to it. So like, let's build this first. It's really difficult to build. It took us years to put it together. Um, but once we get that build, the second hardest piece will be by adding commodity trend advisors. And then it's really easy to add the stocks and bonds. 
So this is what we've been working on. So the first thing we offered was this long volatility strategy going on about a year ago, we finally launched. And that provides that ballast to most people that are either long equity beta or people don't realize as entrepreneurs, they're long equity beta or long GDP or, or long, you know, cheap credit. And so that was the entrepreneurial put option is like, if entrepreneurs could, if they had any savings left over that they couldn't put back in their business, if they hold it in like long volatility tail risk and shit hits the fan, liquidity dries up. Now they've got a bunch of cash. They can either make payroll for an extended period of time. They can buy up their competitors for pennies on the dollar, or if they want real estate, they can hopefully buy real estate for pennies on the dollar. And to me, that was, that was a superpower for entrepreneurs. So we built that piece first. And now we're building what we call our, our, we're about to launch our cockroach portfolio. That's all those asset classes. I just talked about global stocks, global bonds, long volatility terrorists, commodity trend advisors. And then we hold a piece of our collateral in segregated gold and, and Bitcoin as well. And so we're just trying to figure out a, that's the portfolio we believe that can manage multi-generational wealth. And we call it a cockroach because obviously it's very visceral, but we just want it to live forever. We want it to outlive whoever's using this vehicle permit and then hopefully it outlives their grandkids as well. So once again, going back to that, how do you manage beyond that third generation of wealth? We view this as the portfolio to do that. So I'd just like to thank you for discussing Bitcoin on this podcast because now the ratings are going to be sweet. So thank you for that. Or it's signifying the top of the market. <laughs> well, no, we just we just mentioned it, but that's like crack for ratings. So thank you. We'll just say it a couple times. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Okay. <laughs> So you mentioned that you get exposure to equities and bonds. How do you get that exposure? You, I assume equities is like the S&P or something like that. Is that fair? Yeah. So the hard thing when people are constructing these kind of portfolios that are like a total portfolio solution is retail investors don't have access to leverage or portfolio margin. And uh, leverage is a scary word to most people. So a lot of people in our space talk about they target uh, portfolio volatility, which means they're using leverage. But what we can do is because we only use the cash settled futures and options markets is we use global stock indices and global bond indices under the futures space because then we're, we're able to cross margin it with our other managers that are managing long volatility tail risk and also the commodity trend managers. And that allows us to then toggle our portfolio leverage to what we want. And so that's how we're able to get 2x leverage that way because when you're trading futures and options, you only have to put up what's called a performance bond or margin to trade those positions. So they're very capital efficient and cash efficient. And so that's the key that why we set this up as a commodity pool. So like you said, it's a, it's a hedge fund of funds, but it's a commodity pool because we use that specific vehicle so that we could have access to the futures and options market for that cross margin ability. That way you can build this holistic portfolio, but then you can toggle the return to like drawdown mix you want. And so it limits us as far as, you know, we're using global stock indices and global bond indices, but it allows us to overlay those with our long volatility and our commodity trend. And so that's kind of the key to it. And then part of that too is normally these managers are holding most of the positions in cash or T-bills as collateral for those positions. And they're marked to market daily or actually twice a day. But what we can do is if part of that collateral, we can hold it in segregated gold. So we hold 20% of the portfolio in segregated gold, and the receipt for that counts as 90% collateral. What does that mean, segregated gold? So you can have segregated gold under your specific auspices in a vault. So sometimes if you put oh, okay. gold into so a vault- it's actually the physical gold physical that you gold own segregated or have a claim to, you to. And then segregated your claim, because a lot of times it's pooled into a vault. When some investors buy gold in a vault, it's pooled. But you can have it segregated. Basically, your receipt is allocated to that specific gold and that specific vault and that specific amount is exactly for you. That's segregated gold. But what you can do with Bitcoin solves this. No, wait, yeah. it doesn't apply here. We'll we'll get that when we'll get that in there in a second. But like so then the idea is that the CME and CBOE will use that claim 
on your segregated gold is collateral. So part of that, instead of holding in T-bills and cash, you can hold part of it in gold as well. So it's even more capital efficient. And then we also added like upwards of, of, of 5% Bitcoin as well. The reason we have the gold and Bitcoin in, in there, I think is interesting. We think about the portfolio a little bit differently. So we have this very liquid portfolio that's all the world's assets, right? Global stocks, global bonds, long volatility, and commodity trend, right? So we're basically buying all the world's assets. You're rebalancing frequently. That's an amazing total portfolio solution. But if we're thinking about multi-generational wealth, it's not your investing or savings portfolio that usually kills you, right? It's things like war, confiscation, diaspora. Those are the things that destroy multi-generational wealth. And so it's the things outside of financial markets or if financial markets completely shut down, these are the things we want the segregated gold or a little bit of Bitcoin for. It's that fiat risk of a complete, not just devaluation, but just complete decimation of fiat. So you don't have to hold a large portion. Once again, it's position sizing. So if, if financial markets set da shut down, if you hold the 20% gold position, it's likely to go up 5x and you maintain your purchase power parity. Similarly with Bitcoin, if financial markets shut down and Bitcoin actually is a solution similar to gold, that 5% position could go up 20x and you maintain your purchase power parity. So it's always about position sizing, but it's also thinking about this liquid portfolio that can manage any kind of financial environment. And then what happens if those shut down? We want to manage that multi-generational wealth with those, those fiat hedges of gold and Bitcoin. That makes sense to me. I don't know that I understand quantifying the upside in the way that you did, but you I can't. It's, yeah. it's it's thumb in the air. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, at the end of the day, if financial markets shut down, everyone that's really long financial assets are, is going to lose relative wealth to the people that don't. Right. That I understand. I so, can yeah. get that through my brain. Yeah, so I real get the assets. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That so it's sense. it's not complete destruction is what it is like yeah. right is that upside 2x 5x 10x 20 you don't know but it, it should at least you have something that's a real asset it gives you something to sell to go to the people that need liquidity exactly and it's and more importantly especially with the segregated gold it's not somebody else's liability yeah right you don't have a counterparty risk yeah besides the vault security those kinds of things but it's not like you're worried about a bank's balance sheet in that situation that was something that when you were saying it's like a capital efficient way to do things, I was I was sort of wondering in my head was, is there counterparty risk that you need to, I mean, I'm sure there is counterparty risk that you need to worry about here, but like, is that a one of the key risks to the vehicle that you run? No. So we try to mitigate those as much as possible. It's part of being like long volatility guys. You always think about your downside risk. You're highly paranoid about everything in markets. And this is another reason we specifically chose to build our portfolios in the futures and options space is because those are all cash settled instruments twice a day and you have to post that margin for it. So it's no over the counter trades with mm. investment banks where you're worried about your counterparty risk in like 2008. Yeah. I have plenty of friends that, you know, they made billions for their clients in 2008, but it took them 18 months of legal issues to try to get the bank to pay them back. Yeah. And there was a fraction of what they actually owed them. So we try to avoid all that. We're just sticking to the cash settled futures and options markets. So that's one reason why, but other, also part of that means we're capacity constrained. Probably can't run much more than a billion or two because of the cash settled instruments. So you'd have to take counterparty risk if you wanted to, but we don't want to do that. Um, then you're, So then your concern is if these counterparties are matching up, part of the futures and options space is the prime broker is responsible for anybody trading under them and the, and the cash settlement. If somehow they go bust, then you have the FCM, the futures clearing merchants that are responsible. If somehow they go bust, then the clearing exchange, the CME or CBOE is, a, is responsible. So you have these multiple layers of cash redundancies and responsibilities that are matching up those buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. So we're very comfortable. This is why we like this space the most. And then part of that too is when we are 
hiring outside managers, like you said, we run fund to funds, is that we get what's called separately managed accounts. And so what that means is they have a, a power of attorney to trade our account for us, what we allocate to them. And part of that is we're able to put electronic brackets around them. So like any sort of fat finger issues, like if somebody went to trade 100 contracts, they're only allowed to take 10, it kicks it out, right? Huh. But more importantly, we get to see their trades in real time on a daily basis. So if we have a long volatility manager that somehow goes rogue and wants to sell volatility, we can see that and we can pull our cash from them that day. And so this is, helps us eliminate any like Madoff risks. You know, it's like, so we get to see, not only we cash settled, we get to see the trades in real time. They're trading it on as a power of attorney. So we have control over everything. So this is why we really built it in that space. But then thinking what you're just saying though, is where's the counterparty risk is like, it's never happened, but what if the CME or CBOE shuts down? You know, what if something cataclysmic happens there? This is why we have segregated gold, but also we look for some managers that may have actual counterparty risk with like a Goldman Sachs, et cetera. And if we take a little bit of that risk with them, it's also a hedge against the liquid market's shutting down. So mm. it's it's trying to put, you know, all those pieces and those redundancies and that diversification in there. And that's what we we always fear as long volatility guys are managing multi-generational wealth. We try to think through as many of these things as we can, knowing there's always going to be some sort of surprise. And it's also why when we think about allocating to managers, it's always position size is your best due diligence. You know, th there is always going to be a new novel way that somebody is going to figure out how to commit fraud. But if they're only 5% of your portfolio, they can't kill you. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. This is along the lines of Buffett and Munger saying, you know, swing big when you swing. The thing that I've struggled with recently is trying to figure out how much of that I actually believe versus how much of it I want to believe versus how much of it is worth the risk to wealth of doing that, right? And I've always thought of risk as like an S curve where you sort of, can you can do that and then like you get to this point where i don't know let's just say hypothetically you've got a wife and three small children <laughs> and then like you know you can pay for food and stuff and the the next bet would need to substantially change things right so like then you like de-risk a bit yeah, I don't the know. marginal utility like we said you have to concentrate to make a, a massive wealth and then to keep it you're likely going to need to diversify that's right and then to risk that safety you would need a substantial upside for real which like to me i don't really i mean i care about the scorecard because you and i talk constantly about how i never feel like i am bringing in enough or have enough and i'm constantly running against uh that fear but on the other hand like i don't need to be the guy that wins the scorecard game i right. just want to be the guy that's comfortable but those things are, as we talked about, those are in opposition to themselves, right? Yeah. And for your family, you just need the guy that be comfortable and provides for his family. Yeah. But then your ego wants to be the scorecard guy. Yeah. I. You know what? I'm going to say it's like not, so it is ego. You're definitely right. But my ego doesn't want to be the scorecard guy. My ego wants to prove that I'm worthy, which is slightly different. Like, I don't need to be the guy with the biggest house to know that I'm worthy. I do need to be the guy that, you know, let's say we all die and go look at, at each other in the eye. Like the guy that I owe my life to, I want to look at him and have him be like, all right, you, you warranted what I work so hard to have. Right. So that was uh, my grandma's grandpa. Mm -hmm. So like, I just want him to be like, yeah, dude, you, you're my blood, you know? And, and my dad's grandpa too. Like that dude was a beast. 
their outcome was quite a bit different, which was a function of leverage and growing too much. But I'd like that guy to look at me in the eyes and be like, all right, you're my blood too. You know, that's what I like want. Is there anything like almost like trying as an you know, we were talking about serendipity and actually I'm going to quote Adam Smith for probably the second time, which is rare. It's like the idea of, you know, we should exalt the entrepreneur or the investor for rolling the dice. The outcome is unknown, right? Like you're working your ass off to like figure this stuff out and do your best, but the scorecard is kind of out of your control. Yeah, I think that there's some of that. I guess that one of the things that you and I have talked about is like whether or not I'm working my ass off in the right way. And that that concerns me a lot. Like we've discussed, you know, picking stocks versus having the idea of, hey, rather than selling, you know, equities to pay your taxes this year and paying more tax on that, it could make sense to take out a little bit of margin debt. Not a lot, folks, but you know, like I don't know, whatever your tax bill is and let Berkshire continue to compound rather right. than sell those shares because presumably you're making more than LIBOR on Berkshire. And if we're only making LIBOR and equities, we're all fucked. So who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Might as well lever it and enjoy it on the way down. Exactly. There's, there's structural opportunities or like you have brought up too is like, I always think of like your equity guys is like in M night Shyamalan's the village, right? You don't really understand there's a big world out there. Right. And yeah. so you could, you know, especially all the position sizing I know about like your individual trades is like, it's not your whole book. Like you could still be pairing that with like commodity trend or even some, some put option, deep out of the money, put options, the S and P, and you're going to compound your wealth better over the long run. And more importantly, you can sleep at night. But it's, yeah, it's, it's trying to think through like the different scenarios outside of equities for trying to manage your wealth over the long term. And I think it's interesting too that I almost feel the opposite of what you're saying about, especially when you're picking stocks, right? What you're really saying when you're picking stocks, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is like, I can predict the future, right? It's more of a, it is a, for lack of a better term, it's like, it's a form of like, ego or genius game. It's like, I see things that other people don't. I see value here. And it's, it's a matter of time that this terminus endpoint is going to prove that I was right. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I think it depends. I, I think it depends. But yes, I think that that's part of the game that people play. I mean, sorry for talking about it again, but whatever. Like, Curate was not that, right? Curate was a structural opportunity. I think... Some of the smaller names that people find are structural opportunities. You know, something like Twitter probably is closer to that, thinking that you can outcreate the market and being right. But I also am pretty honest about the amount of unknowables in those scenarios. So, and I bring that up because the way I think about it now is like we're retired from the genius game, right? It's like we can't predict the future. And so if I have proper portfolio construction that covers all of the global macro environments and I rebalance frequently, then I don't, it doesn't matter what the future is. My portfolio is going to chug along just fine. I'm not trying to create the best portfolio in the world. I'm not performance chasing. I'm not going to have the best returns. But if I have the least shitty portfolio and I'll survive is the whole point of a cockroach, right? The greatest applause either of us could get is over the decades is survivorship, right? And that's, that's the true way to wealth or the true way to success is just surviving, and so that's the way I look at it is like, try to build the least shitty portfolio that can manage any global macro environment, can manage anything uncertain in the future. Like none of us would have predicted COVID. It's like, how do you build portfolios that can last and outlast any environment that we find ourselves in? And, and part of that is like, it's, it's a perverse way of ego is like to give up your ego of predicting the future. Yeah. I guess it, this is my fullest thought on the stock picking world. 
at least as I implement it. When I think of where I have made money, like Colony, that was a scenario where I understood the pitch that it was way too bombed out. And that was one that had like a lot of political stink, a lot of optical debt, a lot of really like an acquisition that had gone bad. Like that was a story that I think was really, really tough to get your head around. And at the time it was like around two bucks. There's just, there's not a lot of reasons for somebody that has a nice life to go out and bet their life on that idea. Right. But on the other hand, like they had recruited a rock star and he was taking over. And I thought that the political stink was a little bit overly emphasized there. So that was one charter. Uh, when I really leaned into the position size was an acquisition sort of coming like pains of acquisition coming to fruition. And I think a lot of hedge funds that are paid on IRR had to liquidate it or thought that they were wrong or something like that. Um, so I leaned into that curate. I think everyone that knows that asset had already been burnt by it. And even people that I think were sharp either said, I don't want to touch it again, or some funds that like the idea that I was talking to said it's too small. Like they wanted to be in and out in three days and they just couldn't get there. So I think that like the big bets that I've made, I'm actually trying to arbitrage other people's career risk. I almost think that's what I've, I've been pretty reasonably good at. But let me ask you in a different way. How many positions do you ever have on at one time? Well, right now it's like 20 and I know that that's probably too many. It's not about too many. What I find interesting is like you have 20 positions on, you probably feel the same as the narratives you just told me right now and about, about each one of those positions. And then in hindsight, you only have maybe 40% of those positions work out. And then in hindsight, you tell yourself a beautiful narrative of everything you saw that made that actually turn out to be a good bet, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I think that there's a reasonable argument to be made for what you're saying. I guess that the reason that I think that maybe it's a little bit too many positions is I, I can't articulate what I'm articulating on all of them. So maybe I shouldn't hold the ones that are probably closer to consensus. But even your high convictions, let's say you was, you took only five or six concentrated positions that yeah. you had high conviction in, you know, not all of them are going to work out. No, well, I'm aware. So far they have. And people think that's kind of like a dick thing to say. I remember on Value After Hours, somebody was like, oh, yeah, right. You've never had a big miss. I haven't. Like, mm. not yet. I, I'm certain one will happen. It's impossible to play this game and not get it. So, you know, get hit by a punch, right? So the question is, how do you react when you're punched in the mouth? I don't know. I will tell you when Curate was in the process of punching me in the mouth, it wasn't the fun, like most fun decision. But at that point I just bought more because I figured, fuck it, my reputation's either torched or not. <laughs> right? Like, the Martingale method. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, what's another percent here if, you know, it's not like I leaned into it, but I don't know. But I'm, that's my guess is part of what I think uh, kind of plagues you at night is the idea of like, the hindsight is twenty twenty narrative, right? And that's that's part of is like, am I getting lucky or am I good? I, I will tell you, I think what plagues me is I don't have recurring revenue that comes in, right? So the idea of having to kill something every time you want to eat is not fun. And then the idea of am I a product of getting lucky versus being good 
and I have to kill what I have to eat. That's like what kind of plagues me. Why don't you? I don't know how to answer that either. Because even 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 where I know I've been dead right, I still don't trust it. Like there's something in me that's like I don't know that I was right, even though I know I was right. Does that make any sense? Like it's internal. It's like a mental talking to yourself. So even if your P and L, you've closed it out and you've made a multiple of returns, you still question if you were right. Yeah, sometimes it's a sick psychological thing. In what sense? If you were right, or you got lucky, or just kind of like how many other paths of the world could have happened where I wasn't right, right? Like I, I just there's so much uncertainty out there that even if what was predicted was the outcome, that doesn't mean it was the only possible outcome. Yeah, I don't think you can ever get over that. Yeah, I know. It sucks. <laughs> that's how I like financial entertainment so much more as a business. Yeah, yeah, because you have some control. Yeah, that's right. And like, as long as I'm not just an ass and I can try to get people to cry on the mic, you know, then I can maybe get something. <laughs> but then also there's an element to look because just like I was saying, the ruling of the dice is you don't know how many people are going to subscribe, like, and listen to your podcast. Yeah, that's true. Like and the growth right now, what I know is zero pays. <laughs> so I got that. That's the baseline. But people are always like, what's your goal, right? Like, oh, I could want, you know, a million listens or downloads to my podcast a month. But it's like, how are you going to get there? You're still going to do the same things, right? You're going to put in the work. You're going to publish. Yeah. And then it's not up to you. It's like a lucky roll of the dice. Well, you'll catch a win, like you're saying, whether it's Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah. That will, that will grow that. Like, and so it's a form of luck, right? You're just laying down bets. And that's what each one of your podcasts is, right? It's a, it's a call option. Yeah. On getting lucky and, and then building that audience. Yeah, that's true. The other, not under-discussed because Corey discusses it too often, but the benefit that, that I get is there's some sort of mental association where people think that because I talk to smart people, I'm smart. So I appreciate that. But I also, there's a psychological bias that I exploit through the podcast for sure. Exactly. We're, uh, we're smart by association. I mean, that's why I do a YouTube channel with Corey. So I, yeah, it, that's right. I give some of the shine. Dude, he was fun to record with. He's a cool guy. I liked his episode a lot. I didn't know how it would be, you know, because like Toby and I are close. So I knew that hopping on the mic with Toby would be fine because we talk. Uh, Corey, I hadn't done like a real quant interview up to that point. And then we just got talking. Because we had met at a at a bar in Chicago once. It was like a FinTwip get together. And I knew he was a cool dude and Toby vouched for him. So I was like, all right, if you're cool with Toby, you're cool with me. But just like chopping it up with him. That dude can talk. Yeah. People, my favorite part is I think that when they see Corey, either on his podcast, which he he does a, a tremendous amount of research and it's really called down to like 40 to 50 minutes of high quality, high value quant information, right? But then it's it's part of his voice in, in general too. Like he's yeah. got that deep baritone. Like he just seems like just incredibly smart, quanty guy. But behind the scenes, he's going to kill me, but he's very silly. Yeah. And like, that's what I enjoy too. And that's what I'm really liking about doing uh, Pirates of Finance with him on YouTube is bringing out the playful side of Corey because he's a very playful person. I mean, he's ridiculously smart. That's table stakes. And that speaks to me volumes that he was willing to do this YouTube channel to be that vulnerable because he knows he's got, you know, table stakes in spades. Like he's, he's the smartest guy around. He really knows his shit. But also that allows him to be vulnerable and show a little bit more of his quirky or, or silly side of his personality. And that's what really comes through on, on Pirates of Finance. And quite frankly, like 90% of that comes from the mind of Corey. Like I'm I'm just there to- For the pretty face? Yeah, I was going to say the pretty face, but he's so much more handsome than it's I am. True, he is ridiculous. I have never gotten so many DMs 
about how handsome somebody else is. Yeah, that's frustrating <laughs> for him or for you, but whatever. It's good. You're you're pretty by association. Yeah, I feel like that one would that one would uh, you would hate that one too. It's just like you just Corey's six foot four, absolutely jacked, incredibly smart, incredibly handsome, and it's just like some people just you know yeah get, get all the. Uh, it was when I was taking, I was like, what questions do people have? They were like, "How? ask him about his eating regimen. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I respect how he looks, <laughs> but I'm not going to ask the guy about his eating regimen. <laughs> to be fair, I do understand the question though, right? I mean, if you have, if you're healthy and your mind yeah. is good, so I, I get it, but it's just like, that's not, that's not where I'm going to go with most conversations. Ooh, and that just led me in another conversation with you. It's like, so we both know that, right? You work out, you eat healthy because then, you know, healthy body's going to lead to a healthy mind, but then we have to shut off our mind sometimes. So then you use other things to help shut off your mind. So how do you even manage that to manage your, like, I, I think about every day I'm just managing my mental health. Yeah. I don't know. I can tell you, I think that booze is just toxicity that I allow to enter my body and I probably should stop. But I've also had a lot of good outcomes that are somewhat indirectly related to booze. So that's kind of hard to argue that it hasn't been like a net benefit to my life. For instance, I probably wouldn't have my wife if we didn't drink. And <laughs> I also would not have ever met Toby. So it's not like that clear to me. Weed is kind of weird because it's one of the things that allows me to be like present there aren't that many things that I sort of slow down my mind with. And pot does that to me. So I don't know. I'm sure meditation would probably be a healthier, a healthier uh, habit. And I, I've, uh, I've been working on some mindfulness stuff for lack of a better term. And that's, that's helped over the last month or so. And didn't you say you're using the meditation on the Peloton app or something? I have tried that. Actually, Brent Bishaw recommended a book to me. It's called, I think it's The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. And it's a lot more religious than I anticipated that it would be. But some of the discussion that is really like resonated with me is it had to do with like Jesus would tell you to love yourself. And in loving yourself, you have to accept both the good parts and the bad parts. Right. And like loving the bad parts of you is part of actually loving yourself. And if you just sort of like remove Jesus from the conversation, right. And the religious aspect of the book, there's something beautiful about that, that I think I wasn't, I don't know, that that's helped me a little bit. And the other thing that the book said is like the busier through the Bible, the busier and busier that Jesus got, the more he took time away. And I like the idea of saying, okay, the more the busier and busier you get, the more time you need to make sure that you car carve out for yourself. I think that that's, those are like the two big points that I've tried to stick with. Now, you know, my man Aaron recommended the Sabbath and I probably need to implement that. I haven't been that great at it, but I have stopped responding to things that I don't want to respond to. For a long time, or for a couple months there, I was in a very reactionary state. And I've taken control of a lot of that. That's helped. I have no idea how the hell we're talking about this or why I'm still talking. Well, it's also because uh, I'm in an unusual position to be answering questions instead of asking questions. So it's, I just want to turn the tables a little bit on you. But it, it reminds me of, I don't know if we were talking about this. I was a religious studies major in college. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And so part of like what you're saying is that a lot of people that become 
atheists or militant atheists, they, they want to just throw out religion. But what you reference is there's a lot of traditions to a religion that we don't realize is like a, a Chesterton fence that we actually may need, like things like the Sabbath or any sort of those, um, you know, religious holidays, days off, any sort of fasting rituals, all of those things can be a, a form of reset that we've learned through thousands of years are good for us. Yeah. And so it doesn't necessarily, like you said, need to be uh, a God or higher power based or, or multiple gods. It's more about the, the traditions of how to deal with life in general. And that's the sort of things like Sabbath and shutting down are, are fantastic for. Yeah. The pro I mean, the problem with religion is not the teachings. It's the people that teach the teachings, right? So like, it's weird. The only time that I felt a little uncomfortable was around some Southern Baptists in Alabama uh, when I mentioned that my stepmom was Jewish and the one told me that she was going to go to hell. I was like, okay, that's a bit aggressive. But outside of that, I haven't, I haven't really been introduced to enough strict religion to like have a strong opinion one way or the other. I do think that some of the teachings in this book are great. That's, that's what I will uh, limit the conversation to. I wonder about those traditions we references. One of them, I just thought of this is like the 40 hour work week and nine to five. That's probably a great stricture to have us take time off. But in the modern day and age, you know, we're just working 24 seven. Yeah. And Which can't be good. Yeah. Like it was when, when we met or when we, when you came up to visit me and I was in that spot, I was in a bad spot, not like not depressed spot, but I was warped mentally. Uh, a lot of it was, man, I was trying to get like this podcast off the air or off the ground and I was responding to every tweet that I saw and like, it was just so fucking reactionary and I was saying yes to everybody else's podcast that wanted me to come on and I'm super appreciative that they wanted me to come on, but I think I just kind of need to be a one-way machine of content at times. Yeah. Part of that, I think though, is just the idea of work-life balance doesn't exist. And if you're trying to build something and build something great too, you have to sit, you have to be in yes mode. And so you're in yes mode and that's just incredibly overwhelming, yeah. lot, especially like personalities like ours sometimes, but like you have to do that to get to a, a level where then you can start saying no. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's the trade-off and that's the dichotomy that's hard to deal with is like, okay, I gotta be yes mode. I gotta be overwhelmed. I gotta do everything I can to get this thing to some sort of orbit where then I can start to hit cruise control, start to say no, and start to really cultivate and refine what I'm trying to do. But it's a it's a nightmare to get there sometimes. Yeah. Do you feel like you're getting close to that with the mutiny fund, or are you still in yes mode? I'm still in yes mode, but I feel like the launching of Cockroach is the culmination of, like I said, like a decade's worth of work. So that's very exciting. But also I, I feel like I trick myself too. It's like, oh, once we get here, it'll be a little bit smoother sailing and I can relax a little more, right? Like I was to... I remember when I used to do like distance running or stuff with my dad, I would be like, just make it to the next stop sign. Yeah. Right. Then you get to the stop sign, then you make it to the next stop sign or whatever. Like you just, you keep tricking yourself. Yeah. So I wonder sometimes if at least the way my mind works is part of that entrepreneurial journey is you keep tricking yourself to be like, I'm working hard now. I'm just saying yes to everything. I'm working 24 seven, but then, you know, in a year from now, I'll be able to dial it back a little bit. Yeah. And then a year from now comes and you tell yourself the same lie over and over. I did learn, I was talking to a guy that I really enjoy talking to out at an event in Aspen recently. And he said that every year him and his wife take one to two weeks off, just them together. Yeah. And my first inclination was like, how in the world could we take one to two weeks off? We're both so busy with our businesses. And that made me go, we have to take one to two weeks off Yeah, away from our business. So, I mean, we're going to try this fall 
And I say, like, you see, this is even the hesitancy in my voice. Yeah. To like say, we're going to try this fall instead of saying we are yeah. taking that time off. And that's what I don't know. When you're building a business as an entrepreneur in a digital age, can you shut it down for a week or two? I'll let you know because I'm about <laughs> to shut this down. Not for a long time, but I think for like three months or so. I'm going to go away. How do you shut your brain down? Oh, I, I, I uh, my brain's a mess. It doesn't turn off. Um, and and to be fair, when I say shut it down, I mean, I'm redoing like the brand. I like the coffee cup image. I think we've graduated past the coffee cup. So I got some ideas on that. What do you think of, so I kind of think podcasts need to be album art, right? Yeah. Corey okay. does that. The tile, right? So that's, that's what I was going for, but it's a little too like pop arty. You're the one you currently have. Yeah. Yeah. I like it cause it's different, right? You're not going to see anybody else, but that has it. But I kind of like the idea of, can you recall Jay-Z's blueprint? Yeah. You know, that album art where yeah. he's smoking the star. Yeah. Like I kind of like the idea of that. Here's the question though. Is it different enough? So, or Ice Cube's Predator. Oh, that's a good one. Right? Isn't that... Pre- yeah, that is Predator. Was it in Nazil To be fair, he's smoking something that I, I'm not going to be like smoking weed on the yeah. fucking cover of a finance podcast, but something like that. But everything you're showing is black and white. And is it Illmatic's black and white too, right? Uh, well, that's because I have a color filter. Jay-Z's is blue and white, actually. Oh, still, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he had that hint of blue. And, like, I like black and white. I think black and white's dope. But part of that, I wonder, is like if I put like a Tim Ferriss style hat on, is like... Do you need a, a bright, bold color that stands out on the tile compared to everything else? But is that how people find you? I think no. everybody else has that. Right. Everybody's trying. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of performative things. Like Corey and I are dealing with this on YouTube. Like, you know, everybody on YouTube, like especially like the the hacky personal finance guys, they all have like these like home alone faces, like all these faces, right? Yeah. And then everybody goes, you need to make these exaggerated faces, the clicks. And I'm like, is that true? Are you like reverse engineering this properly? Like we don't know that's true because nobody has the data. Yeah. And so it's the same thing as like, okay, wait, people find your podcast because probably other people tell them to whatever. And so is your tile podcast art really going to matter? Like, does anybody really see it? Uh, What I mean is like, you don't need that to grab attention. So you might as well make something that you love. Yeah. That speaks about you. And then they also, when they see that, then it gives them a sort of subconscious inclination of the aesthetics of the podcast. So I think it's better always to just like kind of do what you want. Yeah. And then like if you start chasing that, oh, what's going to get the clicks? Like that just seems like a, a risk of ruin. Like just. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And that's, I'm not trying to get the clicks necessarily, but I guess, so I, my friend is helping me out with the branding. And I think when we started, she was thinking that it would be more of like branding a business. And I, I kind of thought of it in that way too. And then I realized, no, you're just branding the host. It's personal brand. Yeah, that's right. But what's interesting about that is that everything now is personal brand. I There's know. no branding a business anymore. Yeah. People like people. And it doesn't matter if you're a Fortune 100 company. They're following a person. And so everything is a personal brand. It's interesting how people don't realize that. That I, I talk to a lot of times. It's like, it doesn't matter. what If you're a bartender, you better build the personal brand. Because when they go to hire two people and this person has 10,000 followers on Instagram, yeah, they're going to hire that person. Like, it's just... It's completely unfortunate, but it's the world we live in now that everybody's a personal brand. And so those that are faster to accept it, I think can work within those confines a little bit better. Yeah. It's also a scary thought too, that like, and it's a very solipsistic thought that you're the personal brand. This is going to be built around Bill. Yeah, no, it's weird. 
But that's the truth, though, right? That's just why people listen. They're falling in love with you. Shout out to y'all. Thank you. (laughs) The good news is very few of you will ever love me as much as I do. (laughs) Oh, it's sad because it's true. No, I I like it, but I... I have, that was uh, something that I had to kind of like realize because I, I had their mock-up and I was talking to a buddy and he was just like, this is just wrong. Like, it's got to be about you because that's what this stuff is. So going back to like, can you turn it off? Part of me is like, well, fuck, if I like walk away from podcasting for three months, am I just going to disappear forever? I think probably one, I'm not as big as I'd like to think I am in the podcast world. And two, the fans will probably be there when I come back. Yeah, or you're call like you call the herd down to like your true fans, and like you said, I think we just have to be ourselves and do what we want to do. And part of it is like almost like volatility, right? I think about our minds and the way they work is like even if you shut everything down, it's like squeezing a balloon, just like volatility. You can't suppress it, you know. Yeah. Like so, if you take away podcasting from you or whatever, your mind's going to be working probably overtime on like individual equities or whatever it is. Yeah. Or when you come back, I'm going to read you all the podcasts this way. So it's not like you're going to, that's what I'm saying. I don't know how you actually take time off. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's right. I'm going to try for the week that we go up to Chicago. I committed to my wife to like not do anything. I'm just going to be with the family. So I'll let you know how that goes. As I'm, I'm probably going to be texting you and being like, <laughs> this is going miserably. I, I can't disconnect at all. So how are you guys marketing pirates of finance? Is it all, is it all viral? Yeah, it's all viral. So this is another thing I think if they're thinking about podcasting is, um, at least with our personal mini podcast and everything, we're putting them on YouTube too, because you have the searchability there. And I think at least myself and I've, I've found a, a lot of younger cohort also putting a podcast on YouTube. I watch their first few minutes, get people's facial expressions and mannerisms. And then I leave it in the corner and I listen to it like a podcast. Yeah. So as far as pirates of finance on YouTube, like I wouldn't, copy what we do because we're not really doing anything it's more about virality and then trying to transfer you know our twitter audiences over to youtube yeah but what's interesting lately is as part of our analytics is people are more finding us out organically on youtube now than just driving them from twitter so it's always like trying to find that that sweet spot but also this is actually go back it goes back to you and i's like almost original conversation is like Corey and i are just going to focus on putting out a piece of content every week for a year yeah. And not worry about anything else as far as audience, monetization, et cetera. Just do the work every week and what happens, happens. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, you do get caught up into like all the analytics and you're hitting refresh all the time, you yeah. know, like those sorts of things. You can't help yourself. But that's what when we were talking about almost monetizing your podcast or whatever, it's just like, just do the work and yeah. like for a year or two, see what it turns out. And then you could turn around and like monetize things or really dial them in. But you need like a compendium of content, I believe. And you, you know, people need to know, you need to find your voice too, which I think you're great at. And so that, that those kind of things just take time. And no, just I not agree with that. I guess that the, the tough thing is as it, when you're creating content, it's hard to then like, I mean, what our episode will be almost two hours or whatever, right? When it's all said and done, the thing that's tough is to then say, okay, well, to take the time to create the clips that sort of show people why they should listen. For instance, my cousin, Derek, right? I I think his episode is a really awesome listen for anyone that's interested in the music industry. The issue is, you know how these things go. Like, we started talking about the first 30 minutes was basically like him as a magician when he was a kid. I think it's a dope story, but I understand why people that are into investments don't, right? 
So it's kind of like driving them to the part of the conversation that I think that they should want. The other thing that offends me, man, and it's like all me, it's not, if you've asked me for this, I'm not talking about you, but like people are like, I want detailed show notes. Like, I just want to know what I need to know. And it's like, fuck you, man. This is my art. You know, like you get the free stuff for two hours. If you're going to sit down and listen to it, if you want like the advanced, like if you want me to save you time or something, part of me thinks that should be a premium service. I don't know. So I'm, I just, I need to think through like what this actually is for a little while. And in order to do that, I don't think I can record two a week or one a week or whatever. I just think I need to like hit pause for a bit. Yeah. I think you could, we can't help it because it's our babies. And so we take like personal offense to every little slight, Yeah, but it's always amazing to me is if we deal in probabilities, the amount of people that actually comment for things like that versus the actual listens. And the problem is people that love it don't usually comment. Yeah, yeah, and then so that's always the hard part is the feedback we get is very isolated and it's the extreme minority. Well, it's actually helpful. Like I do yeah. get it. I mean, like my buddy Alex doesn't listen to this. He's like, dude, I don't have enough time in the day. Right. Listen, <laughs> but I I do get it, you know. But it's like fine. So if you want to know what Derek had to say, it seems to me that some offering that's priced somewhere could save you a fair amount of time. And you know, if it came with some additional access or follow-up questions or whatever, or maybe you could ask questions for the episode or whatever. I don't know what it is, but there's some product there that makes sense. Maybe. I also just wondered like the long tail in general is like, you know, people like your particular brand of vodka or they don't, right? There's so many choices in the market. Yeah. So either the, this is the interesting thing is, is the people that say they don't have the time, they literally don't have the time. And like, so time is our most precious asset. So like we're allocating accordingly. Like hmm. if they really valued what you did, that two hours, like you'd want it to be four hours. Yeah, that's right. True. That's the point is like when somebody says, I don't have the time, whatever, they're just saying like, I don't, you're, there's another brand of vodka I like better than yours. Yeah, that's fair. That's essentially what they're saying is like, I have a two hour allocation. I would rather do it, you know, grilling in my backyard or listening to Joe Rogan than yeah. listening to you. That's so hurtful. Well, <laughs> but that's the point is like, don't cater to the people that they, they don't want what, what you're selling. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, that is a good point. Like the way, even the way we treat our hedge fund is like we're trying to fire people right off the jump at the top of the funnel, right? Because like if you don't, if you haven't been searching for exactly what we do and you're dying for what we're producing, then you're not the client for us. Like we can't convince you that you need this. Yeah. So it's a similar thing is like we'll recommend anybody else out there because over the long run, neither of us are going to be happy. Yeah, that's fair. And so it's the same thing. We're just looking for out of the, Seven plus billion people, you know, we're looking for the people that get what we do and, and we want to be like-minded people. And that's, it's actually been fantastic for us because our Rolodex alpha is insane because we have all these great entrepreneurs and everything that invest with us. And so the feedback we get and everything is just, we have this amazing cohort of like-minded people, but it's also willing to say, we're, we're not, we're not the right thing for you. And here's somebody else that probably is. Yeah. So you'll refer a lot out to people. That's the majority of my time is referring like 90% of the time. I'd rather refer somebody else. Huh? And it, you know, maybe it's short-term pain, long-term gain. That's the way I look at it. It's like, that's what we're set. We, you know, we're, we're trying to manage, we, you know, we, at the end of the day, Taylor and I built something that we wanted for ourselves, our families and our in-laws and, you know, maybe our kids or future grandkids. Right. So we built the exact product we want. Yeah. If you don't like it, there's millions of other products out there. Yeah. There's and some Tim Ferriss right here. Right. And we're going to be in this game for the next five to six decades, hopefully, if we, if we live that long, if I don't get hit by an ice cream truck or same for Taylor is like, this is what we do. And we don't, dif you know, differentiate what we do. This is exactly what we want to build. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, great. 
here's somebody else that does, I think, what you like. Yeah. That's how I feel about Andrew Walker's podcast. Like I, he, I think he has a very complimentary product to mine, right? Mine is probably more, a little bit more entertainment focused. I think if you want like stock pitches, you go to his and I tell people that, right? It's kind of nice because it's segmented products. Yeah. Yeah. People know what to expect. The nice thing about your approach is once you find the, the LP or I don't know, how's it start? It would be an LP, right? Yeah. That's the easiest way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Once uh, you find that, the probability that the relationship deteriorates is probably quite low because it's a solid fit at that stage. Yeah, we're looking for the solid fit. We also have you know a lot of education, and Taylor's phenomenal at that. So it's also like educating those clients to understand exactly what we do and trying to find that right fit. And then yeah, we're looking for those long term relationships. And so it's it's hard because it's very it's not as easy as hitting like the buy button on the ETF. Like to onboard onto a into a hedge fund and a and a direct it's basically a direct investment to a Delaware LLC. You know we have we have people that help them and hold their hands through that, as far as the customer service side. But like that also provides a stickiness long term. Yeah. So there's both pros and cons to that stickiness because also at the end of the day, a properly built total portfolio is 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 a way of like babysitting you doing anything stupid with your money. Yeah. And that's the problem sometimes if you have that immense liquidity with an ETF. Like, a, you know, yeah, you can do some dumb. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And so it's like a babysitting tax, really. Yeah. What are, what is your tax? I was actually just thinking about your fee structure because, you know, the knock on fund of funds, right? Is that it's hard to, hard to outperform when you're doing all the fees. It's very expensive. There's no way around that. Like you get what you pay for. So we have our, our sub managers have their fees and we try to beat them up on those fees. And as AUM grows, we, we have better negotiating power. They average out to about like 0 0.8 and 18 to give you an example, across the board, but they can all be managing different amounts of money. So it's depending on how it's structured. And then our overlaying fees are, are one in 10 on top of that. Okay. But So it's a very, like I said, it's more expensive than what people are used to with the ETF, but also you have no access. There's no benchmark. There's no access to a product like this. It's not like you're paying more for us than you would for like an ETF benchmark. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. And so we built all this product. And then more importantly, like I was talking about the capital efficiency and stuff earlier, it's like, you don't have to pay for that leverage or anything like you would at like a, a regular broker where you'd pay like six to 8% a year or something ridiculous. It's like, so all those things is like the different structure that rebalancing all of those things like kind of like in essence pay for themselves or give you a better product. So that's really what we're focused on build the best product. And if that best product after fees, expenses, you know, bid ask spread, slippage, et cetera, commissions, if after all that, it's still a better product, then that's what we're proud of. And it's like I said, it's what we invest in. So yeah. it's like, that's kind of it. There's no like, and so I think the, the low fee mantra has been great, but I think we're going to start seeing a lot more pushback to that just because like you can't get the speciality or the niche products that people would need to be a proper holistic portfolio. Yeah. Are you managing to like a sharp ratio or a total return? <laughs> like how, how are you thinking about that? I hate sharp ratio. And so there's a couple of things about that. One sharp ratio is actually built for the portfolio metric, right? But people have now used it for individual asset classes or individual managers, where it's supposed to be about how a portfolio combines. That's your efficient frontier. But it, you can hide a lot in a, in a sharp ratio because it also equal weights volatility, the upside, downside, et cetera. And if you actually build a portfolio of all, a lot of high sharp ratio assets, you're really hiding that left tail of that drawdown in a, in a crash. A lot yeah. of and so what we really focus on is there actually aren't any good metrics. There's not a great benchmark. There's no great analytics. So you could use things like Sortino ratio that are much more aggregated towards the volatilities on the left side, you know, on the left tail than the right, than equal weighting. You can use skew metrics of, of left and right skew. 
what I try to focus on in, in a very simple way is MAR ratio. And MAR, MAR ratio is your long-term compounded return divided by your worst drawdown. Now, the mm. problem with that, though, is it can only really be looked at in hindsight. Yeah. But to me, my golden heuristic would be five decades from now, I have a MAR ratio of one. Meaning, you know, my, my let's say the... A 20% return, 20% drawdown, 10% return, 10% like, drawdown. There's only, yeah. there's maybe only a handful of people that have ever achieved that over a multi-decade period. Huh. But that is the goal. Whether we hit that goal or not, that's what we're shooting for. And this is why we think we look at a very different lens from an entrepreneurial perspective to managing your wealth over multiple generations. We worry about what you can eat, right? We're an absolute return fund at the end of the day. We care about return to drawdown metrics. We don't care about volatility. It doesn't You can't do anything with it. Who cares what your volatility is if you're drawdown 60%? Yeah. And so this is what we focus on is like that more ratio is we're trying to reduce the drawdown as much as possible. Because part of that is people don't realize the industry has lied to you. It's told you that these are investments, right? And they're really savings, right? You had something left over that you had the discipline to save. And you actually need those savings to be there in the future when you need them. You need them to probably outpace inflation, but you need them to be there when you need them most. As soon as the industry told you they're investments, that means they're going to want you to take more risk with them. They're not no longer your savings, right? And this is what you're dealing with as well. It's like you want those savings to be there when you need them most. So part of that is at the portfolio level, you have to reduce those drawdowns. You want an extremely boring portfolio that can chug along in any macro environment and not burn you. You know, you can't have a 55% drawdown like the S&P or even your buddy Buffett went through. Yeah. Like if, if you're going to 55% drawdown, there's likely an absorbing barrier where you've cashed out. And then you haven't gotten in on the V-shaped recovery or worse, you could have, you know, a loved one have some sort of medical expenses or whatever. The problem is the idea of investments for the long run or invest in stocks for the long run is that's the idea of it's an ensemble average is over the ensemble, you know, over the last hundred years has been up to the right, but each individual's lifetime has seen all kinds of things. You can, some people have been underwater for 25 year periods. So it's like, it, it doesn't line up to your actual individual lived experience. And that's why we try to create a very boring portfolio that can manage in those environments because you never know when you're going to need those savings most, whether it's one year from now, 10 years from now, or a hundred years from now. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. I think that, you know, sometimes with someone like Buffett as a teacher, one, he had so much confidence that he'd be able to make it back that he didn't care if he lost 50%, I think is like my perception of what was going on. The other thing is like, if you got 50 million and you lose 50% in Chris Rock's words, like big deal, you ain't starving, but you know, you got 50,000 and now you got 25. That's a big change. Yeah. So it matters how much wealth you have relative to your burn rate as to how much risk you can take in a drawdown. Right. Not exactly rocket science, but that's how I think of it. And to me, it's like, I've never understood why if Buffett just had deep out of the money, you know, terrorist puts on the S and P he would have compounded at an even higher rate and he could have slept at night. I think he sleeps okay, but yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. So, and in fairness, like he admits he won the ovarian lottery, right? What were the, what are the chances that you rode the largest bull market in world history that coincided perfectly with your investing lifetime? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's right. Well, dude, I would love to continue this, but we both have time obligations that are about to come up. So I'd like to spend a little time with you offline before you have to leave. But before we do that, is there anything that we did not touch on? I don't think so. I mean, we went, we went deep, you know, went to the child. We didn't cry. I know. I thought for sure you'd get me to. 
Well, maybe next time. I think you just need to get some lounge chairs in here so I could lay back on your sofa a little bit more. Maybe that's it. Dude, I'll tell you what. This office needs a lot of work. I'm looking around and it doesn't look good. But I did just move, so whatever. No, I think there's there's not much I think else we can touch on. Like I said, we we built portfolios for ourselves and if other people like them, great. If you don't like them, there's plenty of plenty of directions anyone can go in. Yeah, no doubt. And people can find you on Real Vision on the Twitter machine at, at Jason Mutiny. Where else can people find you? Pirates of Finance on YouTube. Yeah, shout out to Corey and Pirates of Finance on YouTube. And uh, by the way, it's finance, like Panzans. My bad. Yeah. My bad. If we could just get the world to do that, they'd be happy. That'd I went to great. school in Alabama too. I should yeah. know that. Yeah, we, you can find us at mutinyfund.com. On there, my, my partner, Taylor Pearson's right tons of great blog articles, white papers, et cetera, to you learn more about what we do. We also do a, a very niche geeky podcast about volatility and with our volatility managers that you can find at mutinyfund.com or mutiny investing podcast. It's never going to do one-tenth of the numbers that your podcast does, but that's it's a very niche audience. And then like I said, you said I'm at Jason Mutiny on Twitter and my partners are at Taylor Pearson Me on Twitter. All right, cool, man. And uh, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. I'm, I'm trying to get better at this show notes. I was going to say, do you have show notes or you just say that because that's what everybody says? No, I have some show notes. Right. I, I put a little bit of effort into them now. I, I now put this stuff into like milk video is what I'm using because it, I think it's going to help me with some marketing stuff. When I can read the transcript, I can do the show notes. When I have to like listen to the show to do the show notes, that was a bit inefficient. So I apologize to the fans that want better show notes. I'm working on it. I have plenty of flaws. That's one of them. So anyway, thank you for stopping by, sir. We can do this anytime. Just holler. Once a week. <laughs> Potentially. Therapy that, session. Yeah, that's right. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>